You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM. Many voices, community radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm your host, Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is poet and performer Jillian Christmas. She has won numerous Grand Slam championship titles, and in 2016, she was named one of two poets of honor by the Canadian Festival of the Spoken Word. Her work has been featured in a variety of online publications, including Lemon Hound, The Rusty Tooth, and The Huffington Post, and in several collections, including Matrix Nuclear Writing, The Post-Feminist Post, Plenitude Magazine, Room Magazine, and in the celebrated anthology, The Great Black North, Contemporary African-Canadian Poetry. She is also an enthusiastic organizer who has participated in, developed, and executed programs in partnership with Toronto Poetry Project, Wordplay Poetry in Schools, the Vancouver Writers Festival, the Talking Stick Festival, and many other organizations. Her new poetry collection, The Gospel of Breaking, came out in early March, and it is the focus of our conversation today. Jillian Christmas, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you so much for having me here. (laughs) As I was researching you for this interview, I noticed that almost everywhere you're described as both a poet and an organizer, with a focus on increasing anti-oppression initiatives in the spoken word. Tell me about that work. Is there a relationship between your work as an organizer and your work as a poet? Uh, Yeah, there definitely is a relationship between the two. Um, I think that my work as an organizer was birthed from my desire to be a poet Mm. who performs. When I first started in performance, I was still living in Toronto at the time. I'm now uh, on on unceded Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish territories out in Vancouver. Toronto is is a big pool and I was a little fish and I wanted to perform um, but it was a matter of creating spaces for that to happen Uh, and so I started doing that I started creating spaces that I wanted to be in Um, I started with a show at a vapor lounge actually Mm. (laughs) at Young and Bloor and it was a little poetry show uh, that ran for about two years it was wonderful and it was my kind of first dip of my toes into uh, starting to organize and I was kind of hooked at that point. And when I flew out to Vancouver to um, continue on my work out here, my focus sort of shifted a little bit uh, from just sort of recreational gatherings to spaces that could also hold container for more anti-oppressive work uh, happening in community. And and uh, my work with Versus Festival of Words and, you know, reframing relations, which sends poets into schools to talk about decolonization. And these pieces all kind of started to cobble together to form a pretty vast organizational network in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the poems in The Gospel of Breaking explore a pretty wide variety of themes and play with a lot of different forms. What binds them together to you? What's the common thread? I think that a lot of them are meditations on longing and love uh, of a vast variety. You know, I, I think I, I tried to explore love uh, in as many different ways as I possibly could and um, with as honest a lens as I could. So that speaks to my exploration of myself and my experiences and also the relationships that exist in the book. Yeah, I think that uh, the book is meant to sort of just reveal these these connections and uh, the power that they hold and the lessons that come from the loss of connection um, and how that sort of propels me forward into the desire for more. Mm. You're speaking to a lot of 
my favorite things, which we'll talk about more in in your writing. Um, and I, I was thinking as you were talking about that of the, of the poem that I mentioned to you before of uh, Sugar Plum. Um, but one of the ways that I think you explore connection and loss is through these poems that that sort of look through the lens or across the lens of different generations of Black women. Um, and there's several poems where the sort of speaker has an interlocutor who seems to be a, a mother or a grandmother, um, their mother or grandmother. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about your relationships with the women in your life and, and what makes this such a rich and fascinating topic for you? Mm, yeah, I, I take a lot from my relationships with femmes in my life. Um, and I am lucky to have so many uh, incredible examples. I guess I was raised mostly by the hands of my my maternal grandmother. Um, both of my parents were, were very present, um, but, you know, as a first-generation Canadian myself, my parents are immigrants and worked a lot. They worked a lot in order to keep us in in a, a good and stable household and to give us all of the things that they wanted us to have, both of them coming from Trinidad and Tobago, from um you know, fairly modest island life. And so my grandmother raised me and uh, instilled a lot of the values that I carry today in me. And among them, the ones that I value the most are this kindness and generosity. And um, I I guess I seek that out in other people as mm-hmm. well. And I hope to sort of perpetuate that as well. I think that those pieces have been really pivotal to some of the healing journeys that I've gone on in my life. And, uh, you know, being able to look at, on myself with kindness and uh, on the the people who have been in my lineage, um, you know, all of us human, all of us mistake making. Uh, um, I think it, it is my grandmother and the strength of my mother and the the wisdom of femmes like Amber Dawn, who's been my editor and, and a champion for a long time. All of these women who have uh, entered my life at different points have given me sort of little keys and little tools toward healing myself. And um, I think uh, because of that healing, my bloodline as well. So you're a performer as well as a poet, and many people have come to know your poetry through performance. Are there techniques that you use to bring performative elements into your poetry as it's written? Or do you see reading poetry as a fundamentally different experience from watching it performed? Yeah, this is a great question. I do believe that they are different experiences. I don't know if I would say fundamentally different because there are so many threads that that bind them together. And I I do believe that every poem should be read aloud at least Mm -hmm. once, uh, even if it's just in the privacy of, of one's own space. Um, yeah, I think there are things, tools that we're afforded on the stage that don't travel with us to the page and vice versa. And I think one of the biggest um, initial challenges and then joys for me in the process of moving some of the poems to the to the page was learning that there were some things that wouldn't translate and figuring out what would be there instead, what shape the poem would take, what uh, boldness in, in which areas and um, how I would imbue the words on the page with those little indicators that you would find on the stage, like a, you know, a half smile or a raised voice in one, in one moment or another. So that was a challenge for me. Um, and I wasn't 
absolutely sure that I was up to the task. But once I started the work, it actually became really joyful, this great sort of game that I had to navigate to discover what the voice of the poem was going to be on the page and how I was going to bring that to life. And mostly that came to life through shape um, and form that felt unique to each poem. I don't really adhere to any sort of traditional forms other than I think there's a couple of haiku in the book and maybe um, a little bit of rhyming couplet (laughs) once or twice. Other than that, the, the forms that appear are just of my design and and they were created to support each poem to to make sure that they had a voice that felt appropriate. Can you talk about that in in some specifics? Like uh, you mentioned trying to translate a smile to the page. Are there examples mm-hmm. of things like that that you can share? Yeah, I think I mean space lives in in these poems def- certainly. Um the pauses that I would take on stage are articulated um in some of the the spaces that creep into the poems. Um certainly I've I've used capitalization in the book specific to uh the rise of voice. I don't really use capitalization throughout the book uh, in other spaces mm-hmm. and uh with the exception of a couple of names and that was quite intentional. I think that there are places where where certain words lean or, um, for instance, there's one that I really had a lot of joy conceptualizing for myself. And it was a piece that is part two of a three-part poem entitled, Hard to Tell If This Is Just the Internet or Another Dream Where I'm in Front of the Class in Only My Dirty Underwear. (laughs) And the second poem is a poem about, uh, or the second part of the poem is a piece about a dream that I've had. And it's uh, one of my most terrifying dreams. And it, it, it's a really about being frozen in this moment of sort of being observed by outsiders or by family, by friends, by community, um, and feeling shame in that moment. It's sort of draws some parallels between my my relationship with the internet and and that particular dream. But the, the way that I try to articulate that sort of creeping fear that appears in the poem um, is through the sort of um, weight of the text on the page. So it begins with a very light gray that as the liquid on the floor is sort of creeping towards me in this poem, uh, the the text starts to fade from a light gray into uh, a deep black on the page. And that was just a way that I tried to articulate would have been this sort of um, slow paced creeping in my voice as I perform it on the stage. And I hope it it serves its own purpose there. It's a lot of artistry to it, I can tell. <laughs> So I think this is a good time to have you start reading some of the poems that you've chosen for us. And um, if you don't mind, let's start with, they said we wouldn't need these life jackets on dry land. I would love that. Is it okay for me to accompany myself with an instrument? Oh, by all means. Yeah. Okay. So I've just pulled out my um, my little eight string ukulele and uh, her name is Marshmallow. <laughs> <laughs> she accompanies me most times uh, that I, I am on stage, um, which is a good, good pal to have. This piece is entitled, They Said We Wouldn't Need These Life Jackets on Dry Land. herself, a little girl, turned away from a birthday pool party. Mama remembers herself, 
a little girl turned away. Before we fly from Trinidad to the small island, we drive up the hill to stay in the big hotel. Now newly renovated, it has stood on this same perch for the better part of a century. Mama remembers herself, a little girl, turned away from a birthday pool party because this big North American hotel didn't yet let brown girls bathe themselves in full sunlight, somehow scared the world would be hypnotized by the shine. Probably even Mama didn't know she was a diamond in a pool of glass, the way they treated her. Today, I saw a small blonde-haired girl drift back and forth. When we finally reached the hotel, nearly 50 years later, standing new and shiny in the same cursed spot, we learn that the pool is the last piece of renovations. It will not reopen until after we leave. Today, I saw a small blonde-haired girl drift back and forth, back and forth. Impossibly buoyant child carried upward atop a weightlessness so vast and deep that she could not touch her feet to the bottom. The big blue stretched out around her, a clean white tile framing the scene in its perimeter. Mama was a little girl once, once I was too. Maybe always will be someplace. After hours of travel, I pull the tiny computer from my pocket. I, each blue image pouring from its screen, everyone erupting new color. Some unknown and yet beloved brown face smiling after another. A newsreel of necessary medicine. Dancing dark girl pops her shoulder in my direction. Mean mugs until the camera looks away. Brown skinned boy and his father blow each other kisses with a tenderness that quenches my dreams. The remedy is loving each other harder loving these brown bodies more than water and deeper still. Mama remembers herself. Mama remembers herself. Mama remembers. That was lovely, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Marshmallow. <laughs> I, I'm curious because you you brought Marshmallow in because you, you raised it, what the role is of music in your performances. Yeah, um, music feels so important to me. Uh, it feels like an anchor. 
Um, it feels like a way of setting an environment before my voice even reaches the stage mm. um, to hold a container for the piece that hopefully is adequate to carry people through so that we don't, um, you know, depart from the poem before it has done its job. But yeah, I think that the music has um, its own quality of uh, tying us together in emotion, in an emotional context. And I think laying that groundwork before the poem even begins. Yeah, I feel like I've just gotten a great introduction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now I can walk on stage. Yeah. It's also, uh, you know, while I am a performer, I am quite an introvert and I do still get shy and and nervous every time I step on the stage. And I think having the music with me um, feels like uh, a grounding element for for me and also a reminder of um, the, the way that I've come to the stage and part of that is through my collaboration as the poet with uh, other musicians and bands and that's been a big part of my education as a performer. Is there a stability to the music that goes with each poem or does it vary performance to performance? Most of the poems are matched with pieces of music that um, they belong to. They sort of are nested uh, within specific pieces and occasionally they switch. Um, Sometimes by request of someone that I'm collaborating with, or sometimes um, because of a particular need or mood or energy in the room, I might um, adapt it. Sometimes I just want to try something sort of fresh and different and and it succeeds and other times it it, um, requires revision. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I I, I do have some standards for sure. Let's talk about the poem itself. And I guess the first thing I wanted to ask you about was the title. They said we wouldn't need these life jackets on dry land. What does it mean to you? Oh, it means so many things. I think that, um, well, of course, first there's this reference to being on the water, being, uh, you know, in some sort of voyage on the water. As a person of uh, Afro-Caribbean descent, um, it calls back to the Middle Passage, to the slave trade and all of the things that... um, that have remained in sort of the DNA of people who uh, exist as part of that diaspora, um, including the inheritance um, of misinformation Hmm. and self-criticizing hatred, um, self-deprecating sort of rhetoric that has been placed there as a means to um, devalue and uh, dismiss. And I think that some of that finds its way into our psyches, you know, like I said, into our DNAs, um, this inheritance of of trauma. Uh, I think I see it as part of my healing practice in my life to try and untangle some of those pieces, some of those pieces of of shame um, that don't belong to me uh, and don't belong to my family uh, that need to be set down. And so I think I recognize in that piece that the pieces that were coming up for me were you know all of these these little things that that people don't even necessarily tie to that history and uh you know my mother was an adult when she learned to swim Mm -hmm. uh, when she took swim lessons and um i'm a water baby i love to be in the sea you know that 
loss, I think, is actually something that's quite generational um, for a lot of people um, of this uh, of this journey, you know, uh, because uh, so many of people from my mother's generation were not allowed to to swim in the same pools and you know, grow, moving to a city, um, growing up in those spaces, there were very few spaces for her and, and her peers to learn and to feel safe and comfortable. And so that is a piece that um, is missing from from her own uh, experience of being a child, of being an innocent and um, just feeling the water on your skin and, and feeling the joy of that. And so the life jackets, I guess, are this idea of safety or um, resolution with this this history that I think is assumed by the greater culture here you know the uh, this this idea that slavery that the civil rights movement that all of those pieces are so far in our past that we don't need them where we are right now and the reality is is that they live with us um, they persist and um, we need to find ways to undo those dangers that still live in our in our bodies. Hi, this is Nikki Silva of the Kitchen Sisters. Join us every Tuesday at 3 p.m. for a mix of stories, interviews, sound portraits, and unexpected audio works from hidden kitchens, the hidden world of girls, lost and found sound, and local history and voices. Every other week, The Kitchen Sisters presents PRX Remix, a veritable mixtape of works by independent audio producers around the world. Tune in for The Kitchen Sisters. Davian Nelson and I are extremely happy and proud to be part of our new community radio station, KSQD Santa Cruz. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author Jillian Christmas, whose collection of poems, The Gospel of Breaking, came out this past March. One of the other things that I've noticed through your poetry in general is the way you sort of play with pronouns. There's often a they or you or an I or some combination. What's the function of those pronouns for you? What do they represent? You know, I'm a person who uh, exists in unconventional relationships, I could say. I, I'm a non-monogamous. Um, and I mean, in the poems about relationships, um, love, loverships, um, mm-hmm romantic relationships, the pronouns often switch because I have uh, multiple partners and it's important to me that they're all seen in my work. Um, You know, I I live in a a cohabitation relationship that is often seen as uh, just heteronormative and it's important that my queerness is not erased by that. Um, Mm. And so I speak to all of of the loves of my life in my work and um, uh, I don't call them by name, but I, I give them each their proper due, I hope. <laughs> and um, yeah, and I think in other pieces, you know, the they and uh, you, I I try to hesitate, I hesitate to use the sort of inv- invitational you, mm-hmm. um, especially in poems that uh, involve pieces of, that I regard as trauma or uh, harm, because I don't want to force the reader into a space that they don't need to be in um, and that they haven't uh, sort of asked to be in. And so a position where they would be the person um, doing harm so I, I'm careful with that one, but I'm sure, you know, it, it it's hard to erase you entirely. <laughs> it definitely pops in there for sure. And and hopefully um, I think that I, I make an effort to place it where the reader can feel comfortable to be to be seen in that. So a lot of the love poems involve the word you. 
this poem that, that you just read is divided into three sections, and there's this refrain, Mama remembers herself, that's structured a little bit differently every time. Pieces are added or taken away from it. Can I ask you to talk about that and, and the sort of role of memory in that concept and in the way that it changes and how the poem's structure interacts with it? I mean, I think that repetition is such a gift in poetry, uh, and I use it so frequently on the stage um, as a, a callback so that the audience gets to time travel with me uh, and jump around and and still, um, you know, have these grounding elements and these anchors. And that specific line, Mama Remembers, it was the initiator of the poem, um, you know, it, as I was traveling with my mother and my father, uh, to my mother's house in Trinidad and then and then onto my father's uh, or my, my paternal grandmother's house. She recalled this story for me. We went, as the poem says, we went to stay in this hotel that she had remembered from her youth and, and it was meant to be this moment of uh, sort of return where she would be able to have the things that she didn't mm-hmm. have in her youth. And obviously that doesn't um, happen in that moment. Yeah, I think that the healing um, that I talk about earlier is in the way that we get to sort of reinvent our memories um, or get to mm-hmm. revisit them and re-empower ourselves in those moments um, by correcting the wrong that was done, even if it's just in our own words or in our own minds. And and so the, the remembering that happens at the beginning of the piece is quite painful. It's that memory of being turned away, as I say. And um, uh, as I as we move through the poem, um, Mama remembers herself, and um, I think that that is the the crux of it. That's the crux of the healing is that she remembers the the poem calls like a spell yeah. for her to remember the core of herself and and those um, those pieces that were not seen in the moments when they they should have been. Yeah, well, and that's such an unusual syntax too, right? Mama remembers herself that it it really makes you focus on the herself part on yeah. the way that she sort of changes her perceptions of herself or her memories of herself or who she is calling forth as you sort of move through the different experiences. Yeah. Well, let's, let's move to the next poem you've chosen for us, but have you tried? Now this one, for those who are listening and have never seen the book, kind of lives on the page in a long sort of dipping um, and Well, it seems to me that it it kind of almost runs away. (laughs) It's called, But Have You Tried? Have you wedded yourself to the edge of a knife? Braided your names together like a promise? Rung your sweet voice until all of the valleys echo, echo, hollow? Have you swum beneath possibility? Carried the cross of an ending? Found the bottom of your own seeking? drunk the false venom of delight, climbed back up the drain, made your way out, dripped in the sacred, filthy as all human and alive. Tell me about this poem. What was your writing process like for it? And was it really similar? Is it the same for all of your poetry? Or was it different from, say, the last poem that you read? Um, yeah, I would say that it was quite different. This one came out all in one piece, uh, you know, with, of course, the edits that came afterwards. But uh, initially, it came out in one piece, which is not always how they come. The, the last piece um, actually 
was birthed in several different places, a part in Vancouver, part in, in Trinidad and Tobago, and a part in, in Banff and Alberta. And um, uh, this piece uh, came really quite like a rush, like sort of like that feeling of being sucked down the drain. Um, it sort of poured out of me. To me, it was part call and sort of part response, I guess. It, it felt like this question of, I'm a person who uh, lives with various, uh, you know, mental health negotiations, I'll say. Um, and, you know, living with uh, uh, depression and anxiety and whatever other atypical things my brain wants to do. And uh, I know that, you know, that experience is something that people sometimes approach with this question of, or with this this desire to want to help by asking mm -hmm. this question of like, what have you yeah. not done yet, you know? Um, and so that becomes a question um, sort of internally as well. Uh, it can appear in sort of a shameful way, you know, and, it, and in, regardless of its desire to help, the question uh, alone can prompt uh, these, these feelings of shame that mm. are really not helpful uh, in that space. Um, so that's kind of where the poem uh, sort of begins like like what have you have you tried everything and and it goes the everything that is asked are all of these sort of adventures uh in hardship <laughs> and also in um yeah like exploration of self and um uh, some of them are sort of descriptive of some of the physical challenges that come up and and some others more uh sort of emotional stretching and all of these these pieces um but i think to me the turn in the poem is is the sort of uh realization that these uh sort of dirty and gritty pieces of uh life are the things that make us um holy and sacred and worthy and all of those things that um maybe are dismissed by that shame, you know. Um, yeah. The this trying and grinding is what um, the living is about, and and so that's kind of where I end up at the end of the poem is in this this place of um, sacred humanity. I love everything that you just said. I'm also a person who lives with depression and anxiety as sort of part of my makeup. Um, I like the phrase, uh, mental health negotiations. I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank <but> you. <laughs> one of the things that um, really struck me as you were talking was the way that this sort of fixing approach, the have you tried, you ha have you tried, have you tried, in some ways fundamentally misunderstands uh, the psychology of things like depression and anxiety. Because uh, as you said, I mean, so much of so much of what we need in those moments is to sort of live in acceptance of the messiness and the feelings that we have. And the have you tried is is just another way. It's, it's offering more chances to get away from that messiness, which can really compound the problem. Absolutely. And distance us from ourselves, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, stylistically, this poem is very different. As you sort of mentioned from, they said we wouldn't need these life jackets. The lines are short, often only one or two words. And um, there's kind of a sharpness to it as a result. When you were talking about it coming out all in a rush, uh, it, it didn't occur to me that that was necessarily your process, but I can I can see the sort of swiftness in the way that the like there's a swiftness to the cadence as as you read it um either me as a reader or me hearing you read it yourself 
it's also reflected in some of the the words, uh, the words and phrases that you chose, like the edge of a knife, the false venom of delight. And I was curious how you settled on form for this poem and, and how you navigate different forms or styles in your writing in general. I really um, follow the voice of the of the poem itself, you know, like what is it asking for? How can I uh, lean into what would be my offering on the stage to, to bring it more into realization on the page? Um, and yeah, that that poem, like, I, can't, I don't know how to sort of articulate it better than that, like, sort of um, going down the drain feeling like I felt sort of like in uh, The Wizard of Oz, you know, like the yeah. fa- falling and falling and falling yeah. and falling. Yeah, um, through through all of this sort of um, these the uselessness of these sort of questions, you know, mm. in in the midst of what is the, the experience that's being missed, right? I think when we're having, um, when we're in these places of self-exploration um, and excavation, it's like some of these questions I think are designed to distract us from that. Um, like, uh, have you have you tried working out? Have you uh, been uh, eating your vegetables? Have you drank enough water? Like, it's like, actually what's happening in this moment is this exploration inside of myself. And that's the thing that I'm doing. Uh, that's the thing that's important. And that, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think that sort of um, slipping past all of those things into um, what was the sort of root of the experience uh, really felt like it'd be visual on the page. Yeah, I think that because I don't come from a background, like I didn't go to university for writing. Uh, I went to school a couple of times th- that I never finished or various things that were not uh, creative writing. And so I I don't have that background in form that um, sort of informs the way that my, my work sits on the page. And so I just have to adventure through it and sort of mm. bring my what my education is in in oral tradition, you know, like uh, that's that's my background. That's my training is. The next poem you've selected for us is The Woman is Made of Eyes. Why don't you set it up for us before you read it? There are a series of poems in the book um, that uh, all of the titles are in parentheses. Mm. And um, each of those poems is... Uh, comes from a visit with my paternal grandmother in Tobago. Um, So all of the pieces that are in parentheses are meant to be sort of held in that container of space um, on the tiny island of Tobago with my 99-year-old grandmother um, who lives on the side of a mountain and uh, is one of the fiercest women I have ever met in my life. Uh, A little scary, to be honest, but... (laughs) Uh, you know, I, I come from that, and that's uh, that's pretty incredible and powerful. And this piece, well, you know, my grandmother now, I, at the time she was 99 when I wrote this, but um, she's going on 101. Yeah, I think that I consider what it's going to be like when she's not on this physical plane with me. And, um, you know, the differences in our ideas of the world and, you know, being generations apart, um, sort of what her idea of like the proper things uh, a woman should do and and how she should behave are very different from my uh, idea of womanhood also i i have so much respect and honor for my grandmother's 
journey. So I know that there are lessons there for me. I also know that there are some lessons that are not for me and um, that there is some dissonance between our two perspectives on the world. Um, and so this is this is kind of some articulation of that. And it goes like this. Woken by my alarm, 6.30 a.m., just early enough to beat mommy to the kitchen. I rise and dress, meet her making her way through the hallway, catch the raw edge of a woman blowing through the corridors of a house she has built from scratch, nose by touch. Cooking in her kitchen, beneath her ever-present gaze, I find myself a little worried for the day that mommy becomes like the wind, scoops up her whole singing being and ascends into the ether. Moving through my house like a cool breeze just over my shoulder, what will she think about the way I clean my kitchen, cook my meat, speak my own tongue, stitch my hems, fuck my lovers? What lessons will she lay for me to find in the heat of fresh pepper seeds? or the steady slope of my woman's neck. I study mommy's face, the fragile ringed cloth of it, her hands the accountants of so much time. Sometimes when you talk to me is not me, but an angel you speak with. I know mommy, of course I know. So the central metaphor here is the wind and you explore a lot of different angles of it. It's speed, a woman blowing through the corridors, the way it can be comforting, a cool breeze, and the sort of ephemeral nature of it. Mommy ascends into the ether. And for me, at least, it, it captured the sort of multifaceted nature of the relationships that we as women or femmes have with our matrilineages. Was that something you intended? I mean, I think that there's that um, piece that I just can't sort of grasp or, or hold on to, you know. Um, uh, there isn't any sort of map to follow. Um, and I think that part of what I've learned from my lineage is that we need to choose our own way. Mm. And that is the way of the women in my family. Both of my grandmothers um, lived in very uh, unconventional ways uh, for the women of their time. And my grandmother in, in that house that she built uh, for 50 years alone uh, while her husband lived on, on the coast. And my maternal grandmother, um, who traveled well into her old age and um, had two daughters and never married. And um, yeah, I think that uh, both of them are, are adventurers. And um, my mother is is another unique one, full of, of strength and, and certainty and, and very different from myself. And I think that at first, uh, we sort of model ourselves after um, our mothers sometimes, you know, if, if we are, are gifted with mothers in our lives. Um, I think that that's a thing that women are, are trained to do, is to model ourselves after our mothers. And I think that um, I've learned that I don't get to take all of those pieces, and, and I don't they don't belong to me, um, those pieces of my mother's or my grandmother's stories. But the ferocity, the the sort of inherited wisdom, the, um, you know, adventurer, the choose your own adventure, like all of that is is what I can hold on to. Um, and everything else is kind of fleeting. So yeah, 
I think that 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 element of of the wind is sort of sewn into um, that idea I have of of lineage and and inheritance and um, even the understanding of the the characters that show up in my own uh, history. I love that, and I'm just loving listening to you talk about your your mother and your grandmother and the the people in your in your matrilineage. Mm-hmm. Tell me about those last lines. Sometimes when you talk to me is not me, but an angel you speak with. What does the speaker know when she says, I know mommy, of course I know? My grandmother is a deeply spiritual woman. Uh, and yet uh, I don't know that she ever found a home for that spirituality mm-hmm. other than her own definitions of it. I think uh, I've heard stories of her going to every church on the island, uh, you know, every <laughs> denomination she would go and didn't matter because I think she she understood um, sort of an element that I really hold as a truth for myself as well. Um, and that is that it the, ha- the the shape of the house doesn't matter, you mm. know, um, that the the sacredness um, is internal um, and, and the fact that you um, are moved to celebrate that is what matters. Um, I think my grandmother has all uh, of these ways that, that that shows up in her own life and her own ritual and her own practices. She's uh, one that um, is deeply invested in the dream world. She doesn't dismiss dreams in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she doesn't value what happens in the waking world um, more than what happens in the dream world. And so she says these things sometimes that are... Um, really deep and um, really cryptic and, <laughs> um, and, and I think are just elements of her channeling, channeling that energy, that source that she pulls from. That is what the, the speaker knows, um, is that that sort of eternal energy, whether it be uh, an angel, some other knowing outside of just the body, um, that that is, is vibrant and alive inside of my grandmother. Hi, this is your host, Clara Shirley Appel. Every Sunday night at 8, KSQD presents The Hive Poetry Show, hosted by local poets in conversation with other poets from near and far. If you like today's show, be sure to tune in this Sunday for another great episode. If you're just joining me, my guest today is author Jillian Christmas, whose collection of poems, The Gospel of Breaking, came out this past March. Well, I'm going to ask you to read one more that that I chose, purely because it's my favorite, um, and that's Sugar Plum. What can you tell us about it? It is, um, you know, it is a piece that kind of guided me through some really uh, sort of difficult exploration. Uh, I think in in returning to um, a place that could be called home, it's so challenging to even understand what that word means, home. But uh, it's the name that my family gives uh, Trinidad and Tobago. You know, you hear that a lot. And so I went home. <laughs> to to find myself a little bit home is is a interesting thing because uh it's not always as cozy as it sounds <laughs> so what i unearthed while i was there were 
a lot of links that I had not understood previously um, about my grandmother's experience uh, of her story, uh, of um, our family's story, um, the hardships that she has faced, the longing that she has experienced in her life. And um, and I, I kind of mapped that on top of some of the the longings that I have uh, experienced. And, and in this poem, a lot of the... Um, what that longing leans toward is this character um, or this um, uh, sort of articulation of masculinity in one form or another, uh, specifically for her, her father, you know, there are elements in there uh, where I, I sort of reach for that, uh, an understanding of that as well, uh, my own family and my own uh, paternal roots. Um, and then there are also the the figures in my own life uh, in current day um, and in past relationships that step into that role, um, not necessarily, you know, the father, but like in that, um, that space that's held. Um, and to me, the lay of this poem is uh, a realization or a, a, a new understanding that the power in the poem doesn't rest with the idea of power, which is in this place of masculinity, but the power in the poem actually rests in this incredible unearthing of this matrilineage, like you said, um, of women who can and will fiercely care for themselves. So the piece is called Sugar Plum and it goes like this. Mommy sat down on the porch to put her foot up. She has so much to tell me today about the iguana and how it could make Auntie run, about the good bush that washes away any bad spirits that anyone might put on me. I must take some to Charlottesville and bathe with it in the ocean. She tells me too many times about the fish I am already sure I do not want to eat, but I listen. Mommy is 99 and she has earned all of her indulgences. So she tells me again about the house she built how no man helped her do it. When I ask about her mother, she tells me her maiden name was Murray. I want to know more about her mother, my great-grandmother. I want to know what she looked like and how she smelled and what she did to stay alive. Was her hair long like mine? Was her skin dark like uncle? Mommy doesn't talk much about her mother, says she liked her mother fine, but she loves her daddy. So I listen to her talk about my great-grandfather, Defratis. She tells me he was nice and fair, with beautiful hair, half Guyanese and half Portuguese. She tells me he had plenty money, was a rum dealer with lots of business, rum shops here and there. She tells me how he died at 30 and how a woman who worked with him told her the story. Some jealous man put poison in his rum so he could steal up all of his business. She asks me if I understand. I do, but as always, I have a tough time telling the difference between truth and myth. Satisfied of my understanding, she goes on. She tells me how she loved him, how she cried and threw herself down in the street, just a little girl of five, begging her father not to go to work. She only met him this once, but she loved him her whole life. 
When she rolled around and threw a fit to stop him leaving, he reached for his belt, began to unbuckle, to lash her into better behavior, but he stopped himself, picked her up out of the road and carried her into the store. He told the young woman there to cook some food and share it with her, and then he was gone. Mommy says that if her daddy hadn't died, she would have gone with him, traveled to Portugal and all over. She says he would have left her some money and she wouldn't have had to work so hard all her life. Things would have been different. She would not have stayed in Charlottesville or married my grandfather. She doesn't say much about this, but I think I already know he was a heavy-handed man. I listen. Eventually, in a moment of gratitude, I say that if things had been different, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't exist. That's what I'm telling you, she replies. My gratitude melts into a kind of passive sadness. She has already measured this option, has found it acceptable. I say, but what about your children? I would have had different children. She doesn't say it with malice, but a tepid resignation. I repeat, but I wouldn't exist. No, you wouldn't be my child. It's a reasonable compromise for her. A whole life, house, children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren still gambled on trust for a man only met once, gambled on the kindness of her being fed instead of beaten. I think about the longing I have suffered in my life, how I have stretched toward people who would not have stayed even if there were no venom. The promise of possibility is a trap that has kept me from the joys of my own life. And what joys am I missing in clinging to a daddy who is always going, always walking toward poison and away from food? What love do I dishonor and ignore in searching for a face I hardly know? Let them go to their poison, great-grandfathers and daddies too. Let them go and leave behind children crying as they will, mourning as we do. Let them go and let us see what wild plants grow in their absence, what medicines will spring from a line of women with lost fathers and distant daddies, a line of maidens and witches who carry their own names and build their own houses and birth their own bloodlines and cook their own food. There's a beautiful line near the end of this poem that I, I think of in a lot of ways as the sort of pivot or turn. I think about the longing I've suffered in my life, how I've stretched toward people who would not have stayed even if there was no venom. The promise of possibility is a trap that has kept me from enjoying the joys of my own life. And I mean, I, I underlined that, I highlighted it, I circled it. It's such a great, <laughs> such a great section. And I think it really speaks to some of the themes you keep bringing up around longing and what that really means in our lives. There's a lot of pain in what you hear this, what we hear the speaker saying, her suffering, and yet the framing is still kind of positive, the promise of possibility. Tell me about that. Hmm. And that line, when it sort of came to be, um, I was thinking about a relationship that had ended that felt to me like it had ended prematurely um, and 
uh, I was sort of stuck in a loop of thinking about what could have been in that relationship if that person had stayed, um, if I had been able to stay. In the process of that loop uh, and the sort of two and a half years that passed uh, in pondering that question, I also sort of came across the question of um, what was here in my life, um, what was, um, you know, presently uh, supporting and keeping me alive and and filled that I wasn't able to pay attention to because I was chasing after um, this dream of what could have been in this space and 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 potentially dishonoring all of these um, uh, incredible gifts uh, that were already here in my lap and you know uh that that relationship um has since had uh opportunity for for healing and some growth and uh i'm i'm now you know i think that i i really value those moments of longing because i think they have a way of uh bringing into clarity uh what it is that we we need and what it is that we have so it was it was a, a way of sort of carving out of my own voice what mm-hmm. I needed to ask for um, and also um, a reminder for myself of what I needed to pay attention to um, because to not pay attention to those gifts feels like uh, the the greater potential loss. I found myself really fascinated by the, the way that you negotiate gender in this poem, the way that you the speaker is fascinated by mommy's mother but mommy only wants to talk about her father. And it intersects with all those things you just talked about around longing. Your poetry often showcases multiple perspectives, particularly in in poems like this, where there are multiple women in your family or friends in your family who you're talking about. What did those multiple perspectives do for you, both in this poem and more generally? I think that's that's kind of how my brain works most of the time, is that... um, uh, it's always asking for more. I don't ever really feel satisfied uh, with a decision or with a, a perspective or point of view unless I think that I have done my best to um, at least attempt to uh, pivot and see what else I'm not seeing. You know, I know mm-hmm. that there are, are endless possibilities um, and that Every one of our experiences are so different, um, even, you know, as we experience them together. And I think, um, especially in the context of poems like this, where I am bringing in um, not, you know, actual uh, members of my family, because I, I can't ever capture a person in, in just a couple lines of a poem, but um, there are elements um, and characters and voices that come in um, that represent and, and speak to some of those relationships. And I want to honor that by, you know, offering as as much um, autonomy to those voices mm-hmm. and as much fullness as I experience for myself. And so, Yeah, I mean, I think that people in my life sometimes find it frustrating that my process is to examine things from every angle before I can (laughs) uh, come to a decision or an answer or, or, um, you know, a conflict and and understand what it is that I I really feel about a thing. But um, yeah, I guess I guess that's just been always a part of my process is to sort of quietly analyze as much as I can so that I don't feel like I am, you know, cutting anyone short or uh, denying them the fullness of humanity that I expect for myself. What's next for you, Jillian? 
Well, you know, it's a strange world out there these days. <laughs> so um, I was meant to be on a cross-country tour uh, in the next couple of days to uh, be showcasing this this debut work with some incredible accomplices, uh, mm-hmm. Amber Dawn and Vivek Shraya, who both have also uh, phenomenal new works out. And um, that was sort of my plan for the spring. And uh, it has turned into sort of a parade of Zoom uh, <laughs> conferences. So that's um, that's mostly what I've been up to, but I'm, I'm also um, a curator, organizer, as you said, and, and I'm helping to uh, curate uh, the Stratagem Conference, which is a, a conference around workplace uh, justice reimagined mm. and I, I get to work alongside the incredible activists uh, Cicely Bell Blaine and um, a number of other phenomenal humans so doing some of that work um, writing more poems and I've just had a, a great opportunity to do a collaboration for Poetry Month with the, the Museum of Anthropology here so just kind of showcasing some of those commissions and works um, is kind of what's on the next the the next little while and and then we'll see what the world has in store for us i guess (laughs) (laughs) well julian christmas thank you so much for joining me today thank you so much claire it's been a pleasure to learn more about jillian or to order a copy of the gospel of breaking visit arsenalpulp.com catch story behind the story on the first friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m during the second hour of talk of the bay right here on ksqd 90.7 fm to share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. Next month, I will be talking to writer Kawaii Strong Washburn about his highly acclaimed debut novel, Sharks in the Time of Saviors. The Story Behind the Story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme. 